Would you open up your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 9? We'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one from one in grab one from in front of you and you can find Mark chapter 9 on page 844. Let's give our attention to God's good word. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do come this morning confessing that you are the living God. That you are a God who is not far off or distant from his people, but you are a God who is near. A God who condescends to us. A God who is intimately involved in our lives. We rejoice in the fact that you've given us your word. That you call us to read it and to meditate on it and hear its preaching. And Father, we confess that we are dependent upon your word. Our faith, our life is dependent upon your word. And so we come this morning, we ask, would you sustain our lives through your word? Would you continue to act for our good through the, through the preaching of your word? Oh, Father, we pray the ancient prayer that Isaiah prayed. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Father, we ask this morning that you would indeed rend the heavens and that your mighty arm would work for your glory, that the nations would tremble before you and that your name would be known, your glory would be revealed and all would see it. Father, we ask for big things this morning. We ask for salvation. We need your salvation. 
We pray, would you persevere us in faith? Would you strengthen us? Would you give us courage? Would you, by your word, reveal Christ to us that we might put to death our sin and cling only to him? No, Father, we pray for salvation for those who are far away, for those who are alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Oh, Father, we pray that your powerful word would work and you would draw men and women and children into your glorious kingdom and that they would know the treasures of Christ and that they would rejoice in him, that they would rejoice in his cross. So, Father, we pray, would you work this morning? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. And so we're working through the gospel of Mark, and we've been in Mark for a while. And as we've been studying Mark, we've become aware, and we should be aware of a tension within the gospel, a profound tension. We become aware that the gospel has wed two polarities together. And so on the one hand, as we look into Mark's gospel, we find one polarity, and that is glory. Jesus announces the glory of the gospel when he enters into Galilee and he begins preaching. And what does he say as he begins preaching? Well, he says the time is fulfilled and the the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a message of glory. And we see the tangible fruit of this glorious day of God. We just follow Jesus' ministry. The, The guilty are forgiven. The lame walk. The sick are healed. The deaf can hear. The blind can see. Even the dead are raised through Jesus' powerful, glorious ministry. And we should expect this day of glory, for Israel's scriptures describe the arrival of God's kingdom as a great and glorious day. Isaiah describes this coming day as a day of sight. And he says in his book this about the day of the Lord. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And Habakkuk describes this day, and he describes it as a day of flooding. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And Daniel speaks of this day, and he describes it as a day of kingly inheritance. He says this, And to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And even more, this day was a day conceived when God would establish, when he would reestablish his kingly rights on the earth. His his mighty right arm would be felt. Isaiah wrote of this day, and he, he prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So on the one hand, we have glory, but on the other hand, we have this other polarity. When we look into Mark's gospel, we find it. Shame, rejection, and death. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the one on whom the kingdom rests, is who? Well, he is the Son of God who suffers. He endures slander from the religious. He is misunderstood by his family. His hometown of Nazareth would not accept him or give faith to his message that he preached. But even more baffling than Jesus' endurance of, of slander and shame is his determination in the Gospel of Mark to suffer and die. Suffering does not, does not just come to Jesus, but he, he goes towards it. After Peter's confession, you are the Christ, Jesus keeps relentlessly speaking about one matter. And we find it summed up in chapter 8, verse 31. Mark records these words. He says, 
And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And there is this strain of preaching from Jesus, this strain of teaching until Jesus meets his death on the cross. And so here is the tension we see in the Gospel of Mark. We come to Mark's Gospel primed with Old Testament text in our ears. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And so we come to Mark's Gospel looking and expecting glory. And we begin reading Mark's Gospel and we find glimpses of glory. There's miracles, there's healings, there's mighty deeds, there's, there's feedings. The, the storm is stilled. But then Jesus comes to us and he comes preaching this strange message and it seems that glory is derailed. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And clearly as we think about this tension, it's a difficult tension to reconcile. So difficult to reconcile that Peter rebuked Jesus for speaking of his suffering, his, re- his rejection and death. As we think about this tension, it doesn't take too much work to understand the concerns of Jesus' disciples. How can the Lord's glorious day have anything to do with the Roman cross? How can God's glorious and powerful reign, how can his mighty right arm have anything to do with the weakness of suffering? How can God's beauty coexist, or more precisely, be revealed in an ugly cross where a man dies upon it? When we ask these questions and when we think about this tension, we're getting to the heart of Mark's gospel. Even more importantly, when we wrestle with this tension, when we wrestle with these questions, we're getting at the heart of who this Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of God. And this morning, as we look at our text, we cannot escape this tension between glory and cross. And when we look at our text, we find that this tension provides a framework surrounding our text. Our text begins with with glory. Chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus says this to his disciples. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So there's one polarity. Then we go to the end of our text. If we look at verses 12 and 13, we find the other polarity. We find suffering, shame, death, and cross. Verses 12 and 13, Mark records, And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. So there's the tension before us, and we have to do something with it. So what are we to make of this tension that we see in the preaching of the gospel? How are we to reconcile it? How are we to understand it? And what does this tension reveal about who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of God? So we have these questions before us, and they're deep questions. They're hard questions to answer. And to find the answers to these questions, we have to press back into the story that Mark is telling us about Jesus. It's only when we look at Mark's gospel that we can find the answers. So Mark intentionally tells the story of Jesus to us as a journey. And in this journey, we are moving from here to there. We're we're crossing both land and sea. We're visiting many of the small towns and villages that populated Galilee. In this journey in the Gospel of Mark, we leave the land of Israel for a while and then we come back again. 
And though Jesus does much zigging and zagging in the Gospel of Mark, there is indeed a destination point to his travels. He is going somewhere. We can ask, well, where is Jesus going in this journey in the Gospel of Mark? If you've read the Gospel of Mark or if you've read any of the other Gospels, you know where Jesus is going. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the city of David. He's going to the holy city. But we must also understand that the journey that Mark records for us is not simply geographical in nature. It's also a journey of understanding. The 12 men that Jesus called to himself that they might be with him are called to learn Jesus and know Jesus and understand him. They're called to pierce the saving significance of his identity as the Christ, the Son of God. And though there's much zigging and zagging in this journey of learning, there is indeed a destination point to this journey. And what does Jesus want from these 12 men? What is he looking for in their lives? Well, he's looking for them to confess something about him, that they might confess that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and they might know what it means for him to be the Christ and the Son of God. Now, as we enter into chapter 9, we're a bit discombobulated by Jesus' travels. While we know that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he, he takes a strange and circuitous route to get there. Even more importantly, we're likely spiritually confused by this time in the Gospel of Mark. We know that Jesus wants us to confess that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the King of God's kingdom. But why does he keep speaking? Why does he keep insisting upon his suffering and death? Why this strange and circuitous route of rejection and cross? Why is this necessary? And what we need in the midst of this zigging and zagging, what we need in our confusion and discombobulation is perspective. We need to have our, our feet planted on something solid. We need to be lifted above the treetops. We need to see where we have come and, from, and where we are going and how this all fits together. We need a, a united picture. And what we need as we study the Gospel of Mark is we need perspective, both geographical, trying to figure out how Jesus' journey from Galilee and what he does there fits in with what he does with Jerusalem, and even more important, spiritually, how Jesus' mighty deeds, how the prophecies of Israel fit with the cross, his suffering, and death. And we find this perspective given to us in chapter 9, verse 2. And Mark tells us this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So we see standing at the center of this journey story is a high mountain. And in chapter 9, we climb to the top of this mountain with Jesus and his disciples. And when we climb with Jesus, we get above the tree line and we climb to a place where we can finally see from where we have come and to where we're finally going. In many ways, this mountain that we, we climb in chapter 9, verse 2, gives us a spiritual vantage point. From atop this mountain of transfiguration, we can see how God's glory and power are wed together with Jesus' suffering and death. From on top of this mountain, we can see actually that God's glory and beauty are most clearly perceived, are most clearly understood in the suffering and the rejection and the death of the Son of God. And that's why we must climb the mountain with Jesus and his disciples. And so as we attempt to understand this mountaintop story that Mark gives us, we will find that the transfiguration of Jesus serves us in two ways. And this is how we're going to tackle our text this morning. We're going to divide it up into two parts. And so the transfiguration story serves us by providing us a lens of interpretation. 
on this mountain, when we climb up with Jesus and his disciples, we get perspective. And when we get perspective, we learn that the glorious way of God is the suffering and cross-bearing path of Jesus. We have a second part to this sermon as well. And so the transfiguration of Jesus serves us by providing us with needed confirmation. We learn on the mountain of transfiguration that Jesus is indeed on the right path and that we must follow this Jesus, we must listen to this Jesus and go where he goes. And so we can begin our work on the text this morning by looking at the transfiguration as our interpretive lens. And as we begin looking at this text that Mark gives us, we have to notice that this transfiguration text is, is laden with many details. And we can just make a quick list of all the details that Mark gives to us. In verse 2, we learn that Jesus begins his trek up a high mountain with only three of his disciples. It's Peter and James and John that get to go with Jesus up this mountain. And the four of them took this trip up the mountain after a very specific time frame. After six days, they mounted the mountain. And on this mountain, in the presence of the three disciples, we learn that Jesus was changed, that he was transformed. And this change, as verse 3 reveals, even affected his very clothing. Mark says they became radiant, intensely white, whiter than any bleach or launderer could make them. In verse 4, Elijah and Moses appear and begin to have a conversation with Jesus. They're they're talking with Jesus. In verse 5, Peter, in his fear, desires to build three tents or three tabernacles or or three dwelling places. And in verse 7, a cloud overshadows them and a voice is heard speaking from the cloud. Now, there are a lot of details to look at here in Mark chapter 9, but we have to admit as we look at these details and as we think about them that they're a curious list of details. Why would Mark take the time to give us specifics about Jesus' journey? Why did he tell us that Peter, James, and John went with him and they, they went up the mountain after six days? And not tell us more about Jesus except that he changed before him and that his clothes shone brightly. We would expect to hear less about the journey of Jesus and more about Jesus and what this change looked like and and meant. We would expect a more detailed report of the appearance of of Jesus. John gives us a a better-looking appearance of Jesus in the book of Revelation. More detail. He says, The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. But Mark gives us this set of details. We have to ask why. Why this set of curious details? And as we've noted through our study on the gospel of Mark, there is theology in the details. And Mark isn't shortchanging us as he's describing this scene. Rather, he is giving us the information, the details that we need in order to make sense of Jesus and who he is as the Christ, the Son of God. And so we need to do a bit of work this morning to undercover the significance of these many details. And what we find when we start digging around is that each one of these details finds a connection to the foundational story of the Exodus. And we can just make these connections quickly this morning. Just as Jesus ascended a tall mountain, so did Moses in Exodus chapter 24 and, verse thir- and chapter 34. 
Just as Jesus took three men up the mountain, so did Moses take along Arad, Nabad, and Abihu in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1. Just as Jesus went up after six days, so did Moses in Exodus 24, 16. Just as Jesus was changed and shone brightly, so too Moses was changed in the presence of the Lord and shone brightly. Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. Just as a cloud overshadowed Jesus and his disciples, so too a cloud overshadowed Moses in Exodus 24, 15. Just as the Father spoke from the cloud in the, in the presence of the disciples, so too in Exodus 24, 16, God spoke from a cloud. So what do we see when we're comparing the Mark story and the Exodus story? Well, we find that there is a correspondence between the transfiguration story and the Exodus story. And Mark is writing this, this transfiguration story in a way that we cannot miss this connection. He's, he's drawing these parallels together so that we make this connection. Now, as we compare the transfiguration story to the Exodus story, it's one thing to make this connection. Okay, I see that that what Jesus is doing is what, what happened in the Exodus story, but it's another thing to make sense of this connection. Why is Mark making this connection for us? And this is where we need to burrow into the nature of the Exodus story. The Exodus story for Israel was not just another story among great stories. It was Israel's foundational story. It was the story that shaped their nationhood as they were delivered from Egypt. The Exodus was the story that shaped their annual festivals, Passover, the Feast of Booze, and all the rest of them. It was the story that shaped the songs and daily worship of the people of God. It was the event that shaped the laws of Israel and how they were to relate to each other. Even more importantly, it was the story in which they came to know the identity of their covenant-keeping God. It was the story in which they learned the name of their God. Yahweh, I am who I am. And it was the story where they learned the character of this covenant-keeping God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. But for Israel, the Exodus story and that God revealed in the Exodus story was not just a piece of dry and dead history. It was not just a story to remember once a year during the different festivals or a story to rehearse with your children. Rather, the Exodus story was a story of hope for the people of God. It was expected that this God would draw near again and act for his beleaguered, sinful, and enslaved people. That the covenant-keeping God revealed in the ancient Exodus story would come and act again for his people. That they would experience again the, the character of this God. His mercy, his grace, his love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness, his justice. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 1 sums up well the hope of a future exodus for the people of God. Isaiah, towards the end of his book, prays this. And what he's asking for, he's asking for another exodus. He prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. And it's here when we consider the the Exodus story and its work within the people of God that the connections between the transfiguration of Jesus and the Exodus start to become plain. 
Mark is taking pains as an author to show us that the greater exodus, the one hoped for and prayed for and expected by Israel, is afoot in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can say this. The day of vision described by Isaiah when he prophesied, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The day of flooding prophesied by Habakkuk. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. The day of kingly inheritance prophesied by Daniel. The day of kingly might prophesied by Isaiah has all arrived with Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Mark is telling us Jesus is leading the people of God in a greater exodus, the long-awaited exodus. But this is where we need to press in further into Mark's story. We can see God's glory and power seep out of the many miracles of Jesus. The storm stillings and the the feeding of thousands reveal Jesus' glory. Jesus' conquest over demons and Satan reveals his power. It reveals the mighty right arm of God. But Mark wants us to probe deeper. We have to connect the glory of God in the Exodus story to the cross of the Christ, the Messiah. And Mark begins to make this connection explicit for us in verses 11 through 13. And so as the four of them climb down the mountain, and the disciples here are reflecting, and you can just join them. They're reflecting on all the glory that they have witnessed on the mountain. They saw Jesus change before them, his shining brilliance. They saw the appearance of, of Elijah and Moses. The glory cloud of Yahweh descended upon them, and they heard a voice speak from that cloud to them. So as they're reflecting on all of this glory, they're considering it. What does it mean? They come to Jesus, and they ask him this question. Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So what are these men asking in light of this glory? Well, in this short question, the disciples are asking a profound set of questions. They're asking, Jesus, is the end now here? Jesus, has the day of glory arrived? Jesus, how will we know that the end has arrived? Has the great sign of the end, the appearance of Elijah, come? Has it happened yet? Now, these questions should be expected. It makes sense in the light of the glory that we have seen upon the mountain. But what is unexpected is how Jesus answers his disciples. Jesus responds to them and he says this, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they please as it was written of him. And so Jesus comes to his disciples, he's answering them and he says, yes. The end has indeed come, and all the corresponding signs point to it. The day of Yahweh's glory is here. John the Baptist has performed the ministry of Elijah by calling Israel to repent. He has come preparing the people of God for the appearance of Yahweh. But what is shocking here is how Jesus defines, or better yet, redefines what the end is. And he points us to the ministry of John the Baptist, which fulfills the ministry of Elijah. And he is asking, essentially, the disciples, how was John the Baptist treated? Well, the answer is, we know this. We worked through that text. He was beheaded by Herod, or as Jesus says, I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. 
then Jesus moves from the ministry of John the Baptist to his own ministry. He asks them, well, what will happen to the Christ, the Son of God? And the answer is this. He must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things? Jesus asks them. So Jesus teaches that the end has indeed come, but it was not what they expected. Isaiah's day of vision, Habakkuk's day of flooding, Daniel's day of inheritance, Isaiah's day of power finds fulfillment in the suffering and death of the Son of God. This is the day of glory. And it's here with Jesus' words in our ears that all the lines begin to converge for us. It is here that our questions as we began this morning find an answer. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed in the rejection, the suffering, the death, and resurrection of the Son of God. What Jesus is doing on this mountain, what God is doing on this mountain, is teaching us that the cross is not a, a distraction from God's glory. It's not a detour from God's glory, but it is the very apex, it's the very culmination of God's glory. The suffering son is the very exercise of God's omnipotent power. The cross is the very revelation of God's infinite wisdom. The cross is the culmination of God's eternal plan. And what we find revealed on the mountain is what the rest of the New Testament clarifies for us. When we leave the Gospel of Mark, we see the New Testament authors helping us out and giving us clarity. And the rest of the New Testament turns on this very connection between glory and cross. How has Satan and his foes been defeated? We can ask the rest of the New Testament. Well, Paul answers us in the book of Colossians. He says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. We can ask the New Testament, well, well how has the pride of this world, how has the pomp of this world been cast down? Paul answers us in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We can ask the New Testament, well, where has our sin been dealt with? The apostle Peter answers us. He says, he himself bore our sins on the tree. And we can ask, where has God's kingdom been firmly planted never to move? If we can move outside of the New Testament in the church history And Augustine from the 4th century answers us. He says, The Lord has established his reign from a tree. Who is it who fights with wood? It is Christ Jesus, the Son of God. From his cross, he has conquered every king. So as we think about this theology that Mark is bringing to bear upon us this morning, we can ask ourselves, do I want to see the glory of God? Do I want to see the the beauty and matchless perfections of God? Do I want to see God's powerful reign over all things, over every king? But we must then look upon the rejection, the suffering, and the death of the Son of God. This is where you will see the glory of God. This is where you will see the power and might of God. And this is why the cross is necessary. And as this theology settles in on us, we can certainly say this morning, this is not how our world works. Kingdoms are taken how? Through bloody force. Or they're gained through backroom deals or through money. But Christ established the eternal kingdom of God through the cross. And in the midst of this, questions should rise up in our hearts and in our minds. How can we be sure of this way? 
Can we actually entrust ourselves to this Jesus who preaches the necessity of the cross? Should we actually follow after this Jesus who calls us to pick up our crosses and follow him? Can we actually entrust ourselves to a Jesus who died on a Roman cross full of shame? And these are the very questions that are confronting Jesus' disciples in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has told them very plainly the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. He preached to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed. And Jesus has reinforced, he has filled out what this means for his disciples. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, he tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. With these words in the way of God plainly before the disciples, these men are shocked by what Jesus says. And Peter, standing in for the twelve, pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Surely, Jesus, this way of the cross is not the way of the kingdom. The power of God cannot be revealed in a cross in your death. In the same way, Peter's resistance to the cross is evidenced in our text as he asks Jesus if he can build three tents, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus himself. And Peter's logic as he asks this is this. Surely, Jesus, the cross is unnecessary. We can stay on top of this mountain and dwell in Yahweh's glory and never move from here. And so what do these men struggling with unbelief and fear need? Well, these men need confirmation. And this brings us to the second function of the transfiguration. The transfiguration is event intended and designed by God to strengthen and confirm our faith in the crucified Son of God. And Mark gives us three confirming components as we look into our text. And we find the first component in verses 2 and 3. Mark records, And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So we see in verses 2 and 3 that Jesus is changed, and his change is apparent. He is crowned with the glory, the honor, the beauty of God, and it radiates from him. But we can ask, well, what is the purpose of this change and the revelation of this glory? Why is it necessary? Why does God do this? And we find the answer in these little and important words. Mark says, Jesus was transfigured before them. Before them. What's going on here? Well, Jesus brought these weak and fearful and faithless men with him. He, he drug these men up the mountain so that they might see his glory, that they might get a glimpse of his beauty, so that they might understand that the one who speaks of the cross is truly the Son of God crowned in glory, so that they might understand that they're not de- dealing with a deluded prophet who's gone wrong somewhere, but the divinely chosen Messiah, the very Son of God. We find a second component of confirmation in verse 4. Mark records, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And here the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, are presented upon the mountain with Jesus. They're translated from heaven to earth. We can ask again, well, what is the purpose of these great men of God coming down upon this mountain to stand beside Jesus and talk with him? Again, we find the answer in these little and important words. Mark says, and there appeared to them. To them. 
What Mark is saying is these prophets do not appear for the sake of Jesus, as if Jesus needed the confirmation of Elijah and Moses. Rather, these prophets come for the sake of the disciples. Upon the mountain, these great prophets of old point to and attest the way of Jesus. As Moses stands there, it is as if he says, Here is the one of whom I wrote. Here is the great prophet that I prophesied of. He has come and he is going to lead the people of God in a greater exodus over a greater enemy, a victory that will last forever. As Elijah stands there, it is as if he says, here is the one of whom I preach. The time is ready for his great exodus. The time of preparation is over. Let his reign commence. These two great prophets appearing beside Jesus confirm the way of Jesus' cross. Mark is telling us this plan of Jesus is not newly devised, nor unexpected, nor is it an aberration, but is in harmony with all of redemptive history. Elijah and Moses stand there giving their confirmation. This fits. We find a third component in verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And here in verse 7, all doubt is thrown aside. For here on the mountain, we are not dealing with the testimony or the evidence of men, but we are dealing directly with God the Father. For here, the glory cloud of Yahweh descends upon the mountain, and God himself draws near to these weak and fearful disciples, and he speaks to them. What is the Lord saying to these disciples? Well, he's saying this. The Jesus who speaks of suffering and death, the Jesus who calls for self-denial and cross-bearing is indeed the Son of God. For the way of cross is not the invention of Jesus. It is not the, the detour from God's plan, but it is my very will, the Father says. It is God's desire that his beloved Son should suffer and die and then experience resurrection The father says to these weak and fearful men, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And as we think about this mountain story this morning and the experience of the disciples, this mountain story reveals who Jesus is, but it also reveals our great needs. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we are much like Peter, James, and John. We are a fearful people. We are a weak people, a confused people, a people who are slow to believe the promises of God. We find good news. We find our needs met in this text. For God is a God who condescends, and he condescends on this mountain, and he gives us ample evidence for our faith. And the text is asking us this morning, will you not entrust yourself to Jesus? Will not Jesus' glorious change, his transfiguration, lead you to put your faith in him once again? Will not the appearance of Moses and Elijah and their confirmation that all redemptive history points to Jesus lead you to put your faith in Jesus once again? Will not the, the voice of God himself, this is my beloved son, listen to him, move you to faith once again? So brothers and sisters, what must we do in light of the transfiguration story? Well, we must obey the word of God. It is simple and plain. God says to us, listen to my son. 
The way of the cross is the way of glory, and you must entrust yourself to the one who is going to suffer, the one who is going to be rejected, and the one who is going to die. He is the one on whom your salvation depends. Even more, we must listen to Jesus, and we must take up our crosses and follow him wherever he goes and do whatever he says. Listen to him. Let's pray.